This morning's scripture is taken from Matthew 13, and I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 9 and 18 to 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. When anyone hears the word, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another, sixty and in another 30. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carol. If you didn't notice, we uh, skipped from verse 9 to verse 18. We omitted the reading of the middle section there. Let us pray before we hear the word of God preached. Holy Father, thank you that you're You are sowing your seeds of life into our hearts even now. And I pray that you would make our hearts receptive, fertile, tilled and ready and prepared to hear from you so that we might bear good fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I received an email from someone I'd never met. And in that email, she said, I am not yet a Christian. I've never been to a church. I'm looking for help. And I don't know where to start. And she explained that through COVID, she developed a severe case of social anxiety that had only gotten worse. And it got so bad that in the last three years, she has only spoken to one person. One person. And she wrote, I really want to save myself and climb out of this terrible state. Will faith be my way out? 
Let me tell you about one other person. He is popular. He is well-loved. He has an earnest way about him that is uh, disarming, charming. He is, but his closest friends, his closest friends know how frequently he doubts and even despises himself. You see, he's been fighting an addiction that has now spanned a couple of decades And in the throes of his struggles, he routinely wrestles with an acute sense of self-loathing and disorientation. He's been a Christian for as long as he knows, as long as he could remember. He knows that Jesus loves him. He knows that he loves Jesus. But a common refrain that I hear from him as I walk with him is, I am so tired of fighting. Why do I see so little progress? And although this young man and this, this young woman could not be much more different from one another, they have one thing in common. They both desperately long to see change in their lives. They both want to save themselves from the rut that they find themselves in, and they're frustrated by the lack of progress. Can you, friends, can you relate to these stories? So why is progress often so slow, with, filled with so many difficulties? The word that the Bible uses to describe this process of personal change is sanctification. The way that God's people become more and more like Jesus. And we read in the Bible that sanctification happens by hearing God's word. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, sanctify them In the truth, your word is truth. But we know, we know know that 10 people can hear the same exact message and respond in 10 different ways. How can this be? How is it that people respond so differently at such different rates to hearing the same message? These are important questions. And they are the questions that Jesus addresses in this passage that we just heard read. Jesus addresses these questions by describing four different conditions of the human heart. Using the simple agricultural metaphor of a sower sowing seeds on four different kinds of grounds. Four different hearts. Heart conditions described by four different kinds of of grounds. The first ground is the path in verse 4 explained in verse 19. The second and third grounds which I will take together are the rocky ground and the thorny ground verses 5 and 6 verses 20 to 21 verse 7 and 22. The th- fourth ground is the good soil. Verse 8 explained in verse 23. So first, the first ground, the path We read, Jesus went out of the the house and sat beside the sea. And the great crowds gathered about him so that he he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. The first thing to note here is that the sower, the one who is sowing the seeds in the parable, is really none other than Jesus. And the different surfaces on which his words fell are the hearts of the people, the very people who stood there on that beach in Galilee. 
Jesus is not speaking of some hypothetical situation. He's talking about what was happening at that very moment in the hearts of the thousands of people on the beach as he stood in the boat preaching to them. He is speaking of what's happening here, right here, right now, in your hearts, in your minds, when we hear God's word proclaimed. You see, on the surface, it it just looks like one man preaching, speaking to a lot of people on the beach. But Jesus shows us here in this story that there's a lot more happening than meets the eye. Jesus is effectively pulling back the curtains to show us what is going on in our hearts. The fierce battle that is raging at the spiritual level whenever the Bible is preached faithfully. So let's peer in behind the curtain and see what's going on. Jesus begins a story with a scenario that everyone could relate to in his audience. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came up and devoured them. In verse 19, Jesus explains this part of the parable, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The path here refers to the hard-packed dirt, the footpaths that ran right through the, the wheat or barley fields in the ancient world. And as a sower sowed his seeds, some of the seeds would go astray or be blown off course by the wind and land on these hard dirt paths. And because the seeds were not hidden by the dirt, they were easy pickings for the birds, the hungry birds who would be circling the fields at the time of sowing. This is a picture of a wholesale rejection of Christ and his gospel. In the same way that a seed bounces off a hard-packed dirt path and gets snatched up by the birds, some people's hearts are hardened to God, resistant to God, so that even if Jesus himself were to come and preach to them, they cannot understand, nor would they want to understand the gospel. And that's exactly what happened to the many religious leaders of Jesus' day who were openly hostile towards him. In the chapter that immediately precedes this one, some of the Pharisees go so far as to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And it is a height of sad irony then that Jesus says that it is the evil one, the evil one, Satan, who comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. The very people who accused Jesus of being in league with Satan were, in fact, doing the will of Satan. And Satan is only too happy to snatch, to steal the gospel from hardened hearts. This means we should not be surprised when some people reject the gospel and show little or no interest in it. When we share the gospel with people and they reject it outright, it is not a sign of some defect in the gospel. 
nor is their rejection necessarily a weakness in you. It may very well be due to the hardness of their hearts and the reality of the spiritual battle that is raging quietly in people's hearts. One of my professors in seminary served as a missionary in Japan for 15 years, 15 years in Japan, back in the 70s and 80s. And he spoke of how very slowly people would respond to the gospel. After 15 years of hard labor, he saw just a handful of people put their faith in Jesus. Japan has been called a missionary graveyard, and for good reason. But there are now signs of a spiritual awakening in Japan. In the last 12 years, one particular church planting network went from a core group of 12 people to a network of 10 churches with a total of 500 to 600 members. This kind of growth is unprecedented in Japan. But this is a result of many, many decades of slow, hard work of sowing the gospel in some of the hardest grounds in the world. Friends, God does not grant to us the privilege of peering into and seeing the true states of people's hearts. Jesus' disciples are simply called to go and share the gospel of the kingdom as faithfully as they can. So church, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart when you share the gospel, but don't see a lot of fruit. Kiernan, Jeff, don't give up preaching the pure, unadulterated gospel of the whole counsel of God. No matter the initial response, the gospel still is and will ever remain the power of God for salvation. So friends, don't let your hearts grow cynical and jaded. God will bear his fruit from the ground of his choosing in his own time. Second, the second and third grounds, the rocky ground and thorns. We read in verse 5 and verse 6, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. You see, much of the terrain in Palestine was and is still quite rocky. And in some parts, there is a limestone layer inches under a thin covering of soil. So the seeds in the shallow ground, the shallow soil would get immersed in moisture and sprout up quickly. That is, of course, something that every farmer, every gardener wants to see, right? It's exciting to see growth happening so quickly after the sowing. But that stony layer beneath the soil prevents the plant from sinking its roots deep into the ground. And the hot sun The hot Mediterranean sun quickly sucks the moisture right out of the shallow soil. So the exciting growth is short-lived. The plant is burnt by the sun and shriveled by the parched soil. So Jesus explains in verses 20 and 21, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This describes perfectly the heart conditions of the crowds of thousands who flocked to see and hear Jesus during his ministry. When they heard the word of the gospel, they received it with delight, not out of true belief or commitment, but out of the thrill in being caught up in something new and exciting. There will always be those who quickly receive the gospel with initial excitement, but when the novelty fades and they realize that following Jesus is costly, they are quick to renounce their faith. Why? Because their reception of the gospel was superficial. It lacked depth. It lacked depth of faith. It lacked true repentance. It lacked a rootedness and grounding. This described me well when I was in my teens. As a teenager growing up in the Korean church, I attended these annual conferences for youth during the summer. And on the last night of every conference, the preacher would give an impassioned plea for people to repent and follow Jesus. The lights would dim. The band would strike up mood music, and we would be urged to pray loudly, sincerely, and with many, many tears. And after these these retreats, these conferences, I I would feel really good and holy for about a week. And the excitement would fade, and I would slowly slip into my old habits. I would become plagued with doubts, and I would wonder, what is wrong with me? I felt defective trying vainly to replicate those emotions, those experiences I felt on the last night of the conference. And this happened every year. I got saved every year between the ages of 13 and 19. You see, the problem was that I was looking to novel innovations, the next powerful spiritual, emotional experience to bolster my faith and to confirm my standing with Christ. But I learned that what I needed were not the latest innovations in Christian subculture. What I needed was to be more rooted, more firmly in Christ. It was only in my mid-twenties that I began to learn that it was the daily, not very glamorous work of spending time in God's Word, learning how to pray, growing in my knowledge of Scripture, my love of Scripture and doctrine, learning and practicing true repentance, learning to put my old self to death, learning how to walk as a brother and a friend in the community of God's people. This long, steady obedience in the same direction that Eugene Peterson talked about is what allowed me to put down roots. And Jesus here is helping us guard our hearts against the kind of superficial spirituality that excites, that scintillates, but is unfounded, groundless, all too fragile, all too vulnerable to manipulation, disappointments, and doubts. And it is also a warning to us that we must never teach, we must never promote a gospel devoid of the cross. 
A false gospel that promises that promises the easy life, a gospel that conveniently avoids Jesus' call to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and follow him. A gospel that does not take sin seriously. A gospel that does not call the disciples to costly sacrifice, radical generosity, and care for the poor. We must never teach such a gospel. Yet the true Christian should be marked by a deep abiding joy. Yes, absolutely. But a joy that never closes its eyes to the call to suffer with Christ so that we might be glorified with Christ. Kiernan and Jeff, I charge you to preach such a gospel. A gospel that is always cruciform. A gospel that is offered free of charge, but never cheap. As you take up your ministry here at Grace West. And the people of Grace West. And the temporary session of Grace West. I charge you to pray diligently for and support generously your pastors. That they would always preach the pure gospel that is never superficial, but always calling you to put down deep roots in Christ. Honor such men. Such men of integrity who love you enough to speak the whole counsel of God with many tears and prayers for you. Honor them. Care for them. Pray for them. And related to the seeds that fell on rocky ground, Jesus speaks of the seeds that fell among thorns. In verse 7, he says, Other seeds fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. That is, the seeds. Jesus here is referring to the wild hedges of thorns a type of weed that had strong roots that would steal all the moisture from the soil, thereby choking the good plant. Listen to Jesus' explanation in verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is referring, Jesus is referring to someone who, who hears and receives the word, but their hearts, their hearts are torn, torn asunder by divided loves, divided loyalties. And Jesus mentions two things that often choke the word from bearing fruit in our hearts. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Now, we all experience cares. We all experience concerns. We all know the pressures of everyday life. Some of us worry about school. Some of us worry about finding a a good job, about paying the bills, uh, about our health and, and the health of our loved ones. And to be clear, this is natural. We all long for, we all need safety and security. One of the conditions of living as limited, finite beings in a big, unpredictable world is that we worry. It is not wrong to care about our health or the safety of our loved ones. In fact, in an earlier sermon that Jesus preached, he told his disciples, God, your heavenly Father, knows that you need 
all these things. Clothing, food, shelter. He knows that you need all these things. But it is precisely because God knows our needs that He can also command us, do not worry about those things. Do not worry about your life, about tomorrow. Do not worry about what you will eat and drink, how you will clothe yourself, how you will shelter yourselves. He is saying to us there, and He's saying to us here, your undue worrying and preoccupation with trying to make your life secure and safe and comfortable betrays a heart that does not truly know, that does not truly believe that God, your Father, loves you. It betrays a heart that questions whether God really cares. And notice that Jesus refers to riches as being deceitful. Deceitful riches. Why are riches deceitful? Because they promise so much, but deliver so little. Material wealth does not decrease anxiety. It can actually increase anxiety because the more you have, the more you have to lose. And no amount of material wealth can truly shield us from the things that we truly fear. The fear of losing our health. The fear of being alone in the world. The fear of losing our loved ones. The fear of losing our purpose and place in this world. But when we respond to our fears with undue worry and frenetic efforts, it betrays a heart of mistrust in the Father love of God. A heart that has a vice-like grip on our lives. And that pursuit, that preoccupation with securing, securing safety and comfort for ourselves, if it is left unchecked and unmitigated, that pursuit will become a ravenous, wild hedge of thorns that will suck all your energy, all your attention, all your love and affection, so that you have no room left in your heart for the gospel. When I first moved into our house in the beautiful city of Hamilton, did somebody laugh? Really is. Check it out. In a beautiful city of Hamilton, 11 years ago, our backyard was a disgusting, muddy mess. The previous owners of the house had let their two large dogs use their backyard as their private bathrooms and playpen. And uh, it was disgusting. But over the years, for the many years, my wife transformed our backyard into a beautiful garden. But there was one problem that we kept running into year after year, and that was a problem of these two large Manitoba maple trees, sometimes called box elder maple trees, growing on our neighbor's side of the fence. And these two large trees and their massive sprawling root systems had long ago crossed over into our backyard and they were insatiable in their hunger for moisture and nutrients and they stole brazenly, ruthlessly from our poor, struggling plants and they left them impoverished and small. Those big, hawking trees choked our small plants, our plants did not stand a chance. 
And we tried all kinds of things to solve this problem. We cut away as many of those roots as we can that were protruding into our yard. We took some pieces of sheet metal and buried them between our neighbor's yard and ours. We laid down landscaping fabric. We built raised beds. Finally, we had to relocate our raised beds as far away from those trees as possible. And it was then and only then that our plants began to flourish far removed from the choking, stealing, greedy roots of our neighbor's trees. Friends, what are the Manitoba maples? What are the hedges of thorns planted in your heart that choke the word and steal your affections for Christ? What are the unbridled pursuits, the unbridled preoccupations that keep the gospel from bearing good, plentiful fruit in your life. I mentioned one way that riches can be deceitful, that it doesn't deliver what it promises. Another way that riches can be deceitful is that we're often blind to them. We're often blind to the thing that is killing us. We're blind to the giant tree planted right next to the small seedling of the gospel in our hearts. We're blind to the ways that inevitably it is invasive roots crowd out and steal our joy and love and affection for Christ. And that is why in many, many ways this thorny ground is the most, is the most insidious of all the grounds. We're often oblivious to the ways that we give our hearts over to spiritual ruin. And that is precisely the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came to die to bear upon his innocent self the weight of our sin that causes such spiritual numbness. Jesus rose from the dead so that we would rise with him from spiritual deadness to being alive to God, to being awake to the things of God. Jesus ascended to heaven so that he might send the Holy Spirit so that he would give us new hearts that long for his word. To awaken a childlike faith that looks to Christ to kill and uproot that thorny hedge in our hearts that chokes the word. And with the Spirit's coming, Jesus founded his church, the new community of God's redeemed people. And it is in these communities, it is here at Grace West and many other churches that we learn to entrust ourselves to brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who can help us to see what we can't see, what we don't want to see. Finally, the fourth ground, the good soil. Verse 8 other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus then explains in verse 23, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. When Jesus speaks of understanding here, he's not merely referring to intellectual comprehension or, or mental Ascent. Jesus is using the word understanding as shorthand for the one who hears the gospel and responds with faith, love, and obedience. And for this group of people, they do not only grow healthy, strong, and vital, they bear fruit. 
Fruit bearing is a prominent theme in the Bible, and none more so than in the Gospel of Matthew. And for Jesus, fruit bearing is not just about flourishing for its own sake. It is about flourishing so that we might nourish and delight others with our fruit. We're called to bear fruit, not to boast about our fruitfulness or to just enjoy the fruit for ourselves, but to benefit others with the fruit that God produces in us. But notice what Jesus says about fruit bearing. Some will yield a hundredfold, some 60, another 30. And that begs the question, why? Why the differences? And for that matter, we still haven't answered the question, how do people change? How do people change? We have learned that the things that hinder growth, what hinders fruitfulness, but how do people change? And here's the answer. We don't know. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29, Jesus tells another similar parable. And in this parable, Jesus tells a story of a man who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, he sleeps, he gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, but he has no idea how it's happening. All by itself, Jesus says, the soil produces grain. All that he knows is when the grain is ripe, it's time to put the sickle to it because the harvest has come. What is Jesus saying? Farming is hard work, but it's also an act of faith. There is an inherent mystery to how people change, how the kingdom of God grows. Why? Because it is a sovereign work of God. He's in control. We are not. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see, our, our work, the work of the church, the work of Kiernan and Jeff and your elders, our work is to simply faithfully prepare the soils of our hearts and to keep sowing the seeds by God's grace. We can't bear fruit. We can't bring about growth. We can't determine or predict how much fruit we will bear. All we can do is to pray and prepare and sow. God must give the growth. God must bear the fruit. And that may sound deflating for some of us who like to think that we can control everything through our competence, our hard work. But this is actually good news. It is very good news because it means that it's not up to us to bear the fruit. It's not up to us to ultimately wear ourselves thin and work our fingers to the bone. It is the work of God's sheer sovereign grace. Our job is not to make things grow, but to pray and prepare for it. So my final charge to all of you is this. Respect the mystery of the kingdom. Respect the mystery of kingdom growth. Respect it and rest 
in it. Because to respect and rest in the mystery is to respect and rest in the sovereign sower who will bear his fruit in you in due time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the growth of this church. We thank you for this beautiful, momentous day when we can celebrate the growth of this church and the installation of its pastors. And we pray that as we contemplate and as we pray and as we prepare for your spirit to give growth to the individuals here and to this church and to your kingdom as a whole, I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith, keep it soft, keep it fertile, to keep our hearts from growing hard and jaded, skeptical. And I pray that you would bear the good fruit that you have planned for this church in your good time. We pray this in your name. Amen.